one of my favorite things I like to ask, uh, you know, young staff or young people entering the space is like, uh, what do you do if, if you want to learn how to ride a bike? Honestly, I think that I, I love that question. I think the way to approach it after years of learning about it is to just do it. You just ride the bike. You just ride the bike. You yeah. just ride the bike. Hey, listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we profile and highlight the lessons learned from entrepreneurs, founders, and investors shaping and impacting the Asia startup ecosystem. I apologize for the hiatus. For the past few weeks, I've been very busy. I spent one and a half weeks doing back-to-back episodes, which I found out will burn you out really fast. On the upside, there's a big backlog I'm working off. More importantly, it will lead to more consistent week-over-week episode releases for the next coming two months or so. On the bad side, it took me a lot longer to get back on the horse. Consistency is king in this game, and I'm recommitting to you guys to stay on the horse for as long as I can, for as much as I can from here on out. This week's episode is a continuation from episode 4, part 1 of Andrew Yananatham's story, or as our friends know him, Andrew G, of how he grew up from a small town in Ipoh, Malaysia, from breaking into the Boston Consulting Group. And now finally, we get to hear the rest of the story, which he gets much deeper into tech startups and entrepreneurship. The quote in the beginning of the episode, ironically, is a little bit opposite of how Andrew broke into startups and entrepreneurship. As you will learn, because of his consulting background, he approached it from a more analytical, step-by-step de-risking process, which eventually led to his successful career at Lazada. If you want to build a business, just go build a business. You don't need consulting or investment banking or anything not directly related to doing this. This advice was, of course, insights we developed in hindsight after lots of painful yet rewarding experiences in our journey of entrepreneurship. In this episode, we will also cover grind culture in Silicon Valley, working with the World Bank and the famous Global Entrepreneurship Network Endeavor, whether or not business school is a good value proposition and advice if you're considering it. If you're curious about the history and the future of e-commerce in Asia, then you don't want to miss the story of pre-Alibaba Lazada and post-Alibaba Lazada. We will also talk about more recent events with what's happening with 500 startups and Sequoia, and more importantly, the topic of building self-confidence and how to avoid self-assurance. Here is another episode you don't want to miss. Let's dive right in. Welcome back to part two, Andrew. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so last time we left off, we had some technical difficulties. Um, we cover some really good topics and I kind of want to revisit some of them, right? So, um, last time you were talking about be- your experience at BCG and the events leading up to that. And that's kind of when you got cut off. Um, you know, the lessons were really good, if, you know, once you're reading in between the lines. So a few of those topics I would love to get into deeper later in the session. Um, you know, however, I want to finish up, you know, what we talked about at BCG and your transitioning into Lazada. Right. Uh, so before um, we were talking about BCG, Boston Consulting Group, uh, you working there and uh, towards the end of your experience, uh, you mentioned how they support learning and growth and allow for sabbaticals. Right. Uh, and they have a strong emphasis on alumni relationships and development. Um, and you kind of recapped how after a few years, a lot of consultants um they, they kind of feel that itch where they want to feel the impact of their work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they either kind of diverge, right? They either become lifers and be consultants forever, mm-hmm. or they go off into, you know, the corporate world, or the startup world, or something else where they yeah. can have an impact, right? Um, which is very interesting because I, I, on my fifth episode, I uh, interviewed my friend Isaac. He worked for Facebook for five years, and this is from Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. right? And what I found very interesting is that after working five years, you're only allowed to have one month off fully paid. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. And so he tried to kind of get that, but then there were a lot of internal conflicts. And it, I, I found it really kind of shocking that 
a well-established company in 2016 just was not the same as management consulting. So why do you think uh, management consulting for allows for such a long sabbatical for the employees? Um, so context is um, the leave actually is unpaid. Okay. As well. Yeah. Right. So you're, it's, it's an unpaid leave with the, you know, um, guarantee that you get to come back. Um, mm -hmm. and so I, I'm not sure if Facebook would allow that as well, but I think management consulting encourages people to get out, try to do their own thing, figure out their own path. There's an implicit understanding when you join management consulting that you're only there for a couple of years. Mm. Uh, the vast majority of people do get out and, you know, uh, may become future clients. So it's almost celebrated when people get out, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not seen as a loss like you are seen in a lot of other companies. I guess that would be contrasting with tech then. You no, know, I understand in a context of a high growth or early stage startup, right? You probably don't want to lose your employees. Um, but you know, someone like Facebook who's been around, uh, you would think they would celebrate people leaving too. Um, but it seems like that's not the case. Uh, why, why do you think Silicon Valley doesn't allow for sabbaticals then? I think, um, uh, look, I, they may actually allow unpaid leaves. I don't know if anyone has, you know, tried okay. and ha hasn't gotten that done. Uh, most companies, I think, are relatively flexible with unpaid leaves. Um, but it really depends on two things, right? Like one is, you know, the level of responsibility you have. The more responsibilities you have, it's harder to uh, kind of replace you, That's true, right? Yeah. Uh, in something like consulting, I mean, not to say that everyone's the same, but it's almost cookie cutter, right? If yeah. somebody leaves a project, you get someone else to replace them. They know how to make slides as well. It's not, <laughs> the, you know, the cost of replacement isn't that heavy, right? True. Uh, the further away you are from early stage, it's probably easier to replace someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so at the, towards the end, you also mentioned that, uh, you, you know, you were probably getting some feelings that you wanted to leave management consulting, but, um, you didn't immediately leave, right? You took some secondments, right? So you spent some time at Endeavor and the World Bank. Mm. So maybe you could talk about, you know, how did that work? Like, how does one working for management consulting get placed to another organization? Got it. Um, so, you know, at, at BCG, they do make it incredibly easy. You actually have a board internally where you get placements. Uh, for potential opportunities. That's not what happened to me. What happened actually was someone at the World Bank saw a project that I did at BCG ah, okay. in my early years, and it was very similar to what the World Bank was trying to do. Um, context was we launched something with the Malaysian government, um, to kind of spur entrepreneurship here. It resulted in lots of investment and, 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 and new projects. Um, and so the project was called Digital Malaysia. So it's like mm. in like late 2010 or early 2011. Um, so the World Bank had this project called EPIC, the Entrepreneurship Program for Innovation in the Caribbean. They were trying to do the same thing across 14 Caribbean states. Um, now this was me having a, a, a string of like pretty intense cases with BCG. Mm. Uh, and then I get a call from the World Bank saying, hey, we'd like you to, you know, help us with this project. It's going to be in the Caribbean. Mm. Uh, you know, it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> wasn't the hardest. Good, uh, good timing. Good timing. Good yeah. timing. So, you know, I, I and, and you know, with the context of the last uh, podcast we did, um, I had really wanted to live abroad at this point. So this mm. opportunity would mean I get to live in D.C., uh, and, um, spent a lot of my time traveling, uh, the Americas and, and it sounded like a super fun opportunity. Um, what made, you know, the, the icing on the cake was, um, I really wanted to dip my toes into entrepreneurship and, you know, I was approaching it with a very academic, uh, point of view, right? Like I wanted to see it from the outside, not really do it yet. Typical consultant. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. so, <laughs> you know, and this project would allow me to understand, mm. you know, entrepreneurship. How does it work? You know, what are the kinds of things that allow ecosystems to flourish? What makes entrepreneurs different from everyone else. I wanted to, you know, treat entrepreneurship as a scientific subject. Mm. Um, 
Um, so it was, it was a super cool opportunity. Uh, you know, I think I did eight to nine months with, with the World Bank. Um, and it was, um, the kind of opportunity that allowed me to reach out to people in established ecosystems, like in the Valley, uh, who ran accelerators, who ran VCs and try to understand what made certain ecosystems succeed. So it was very analytical process of understanding what we needed to do in Jamaica and Barbados mm-hmm. and Trinidad to succeed. And then actively going to these markets and trying to implement uh, interesting projects in partnership with those governments. You know, we kicked off a project for diaspora Jamaicans to match um, angel investments into companies mm-hmm. in Jamaica. We we spoke to the venture banks in, in Barbados, Trinidad to set up training programs. It was, it was a pretty cool project. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar to kind of what you did for Malaysia then, I guess? Uh, y- yes, with the context that the Malaysian project was quite short and this was like a little mm, bit longer and longer. I was in the driving seat. And you were driving it. Yeah. And uh, so actually this was technically a sabbatical then. This wasn't related to BCG at all. No. Well, BCG does have relationships with the company um, and, and in a way they bless it. Mm, okay. But yeah, it's, it's, but it wasn't like an official client and yes. okay, money wasn't flowing that way. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I want to actually bring up that one point that you talked about just now. Right. So you kind of approached a situation where you wanted to dip your toes in entrepreneurship. Um, one of my favorite things I like to ask, uh, you know, young staff or young people entering the space is like, uh, what do you do if, if you want to learn how to ride a bike? Honestly, I think that I, I love that question. I think the way to approach it after years of learning about it is to just do it. You just ride the bike. You just right? ride the bike. You just yeah. ride the bike. You don't think too much. Yeah. I, have, I have a very funny story about this. So like, um, my girlfriend, Amy, who you interviewed you yeah. know, uh, a few weeks back, um, we were both in London where they just had launched Boris bikes, you know, those, those bikes that you get mm. to rent for an hour. And, um, we were trying to look for the closest stop for these bikes and just to, you know, show it how, how our personalities are different. I downloaded the app. I was trying to look at it and figure out mathematically what was the closest position to the yeah. bike in the process of doing that she appeared with the bike <laughs> right so yeah. and and she's like an entrepreneur who's just like you just know, go do it he just just does stuff yeah. right yeah. so you know that's how you ride a bike yeah right you don't study mechanical engineering how to build it you know the aerodynamics right no. so i mean i think that's a really it's interesting so like uh but i guess you know coming from consulting it's natural right correct uh, but, but did it help you in any way then approaching it this way you think no absolutely so i think what you ultimately are doing is is you're you're de-risking things, right? Yeah. You, you you build a mindset of you're trying to increase the amount of returns you have for the least amount of risk possible. Mm. In reality, the world is you know sort of chaotic, and you can't really control for many variables. And so that's why entrepreneurship is one of these journeys that allows you to just you know do stuff and then see what happens and and react to that. Mm. I think consultants tend to overthink things. We mm. overanalyze. We get into analysis paralysis. Sometimes we never move on. Um, you asked like. What was one of the reasons a lot of people leave consulting to get into uh, entrepreneurship or the startup world? And, and a lot of it is actually just trying to like understand the effects of decisions you make and how to actionize them. And when you do it, to be able to deal with the repercussions, right? Like yeah. in, in life, you have first order, second order, third order effects. Yes. Consulting only exposes you to the first order. Mm-hmm. Right. You say client do X and you'll get Y done. Yeah. In reality, Y leads to Z and Z leads to something else, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. So in a path of entrepreneurship, essentially, it's just you know going beyond second, third, or it's actually going down the whole entire thing, right? You have, to, you have to know deeply and broadly uh, to execute and make it, uh, I guess, your vision happen, right? Um, yeah. So then eventually you work quite a long time at 
the World Bank and you were eventually placed to Latin America? Yeah, so I, I was having a ton of fun at the World Bank. Uh, decided to call BCG and extend my mm. my sabbatical by a little bit because I I had been traveling to the to South America for for a couple of months then and I absolutely loved it. I uh, wanted to spend some time traveling. Uh, I also was you know risk averse enough to not want to just be traveling for a couple of months, worried how it might look on my CV, yeah. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I ended up. Um, um, getting in touch with Endeavor. So Endeavor is a organization that helps high potential entrepreneurs. So they, they find entrepreneurs that they think have the potential to grow, uh, massive companies. And then they provide them support in, in the form of mentorship, in the mm-hmm. form of, uh, network, in the form of, uh, of placing people with them. So I put my hand up as someone who could be placed with a startup. I interviewed with a couple in Chile and Argentina, uh, ended up finding one that I really liked. So it was an edutech company based out of Buenos Aires. Um, I stayed there for about three months, um, had an incredible journey understanding uh, the Latin American space, uh, helped them, you know, come up with the uh, process of raising their, their first fund as well as, uh, you know, this, their, their expansion into the other South American countries. Um, yeah, that was my first foray into that kind of world. And do you think uh, this experience at the World Bank uh, revolved in entrepreneurship and endeavor? Was they, Were they really critical in getting uh, your network in entrepreneurship? Do you still have these contacts today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I still am in touch with a lot of the people that, uh, you know, helped me in that process. But I think um, beyond just the network, and I think we touched on this like last week on a very similar topic with debating, um, you know, the network is something that I'll continue to tap on. But but a lot of people think of this network as this, you know, um, this this thing that you have that you can use. Mm. A network is how effectively you use it, right? And a lot of times the network is very localized. The network is very, you know, uh, context specific. What you actually get out, and for me, that's the the biggest benefit I get, was a confidence building exercise as well. Mm. Because when you dip your toes into entrepreneurship, you see these other entrepreneurs, you understand that, uh, you know, this guy building a, a green tech startup in Barbados has close to nothing, but is still putting it all behind a mission that he believes in, makes yeah. you believe that you can do that as well. Yeah. So you see behind the curtain, you Correct. see that it's, you know, these guys are not much different you or even more disadvantaged than you and, exactly. and they're making it happen. Yeah. Right? Okay. So then um, what percentage of employees actually come back after sabbaticals? I don't know the exact number, but I would assume that most people who get into sabbaticals have leaving already in their mind, mm. but they're just too afraid to execute on it and they want to test the waters a little bit outside. Yeah. Um, and eventually they all will leave. It's just a question of how soon. How soon. Okay. Um, for me, it was about six months, I think. So it's just the nature of the business for consulting that. Yeah. And, and I guess they celebrate it. It's like you said, it's another potential revenue stream if these people go out. And, Correct. Yeah. And the alumni network is amazingly large and very well supportive. For it. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, you know, you were thinking about leaving. So we talked about business school, right? And, yeah. Um, you were, I asked you why you know, we were thinking about business school. You thought it would open more doors. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of revisit some of those questions. Why do you think so many consultants and investment bankers want to go to business schools after a few years? So it's, it's funny because it happens both ways. A lot of people from business schools want to get into consulting and yes, a lot of consultants correct. want to get in business school. Yeah. And I think it's almost like a rite of passage, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you, you're told in your first couple of years in consulting that that is what a lot of consultants do. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a path that's tried. It's tested. Uh, it's a way for you to build. Like ultimately, I mean, I'm not trying to, um, say like business school has its role. Um, a lot of it is actually, like what you learn from it. But unlike other master's programs, business school is mostly about that brand name. Mm. It's about the network that you build. 
Um, and it's about what you do immediately after business school, yes. like that first job you get, right? So for me, the context of business school was, um, I felt like I wanted to migrate to the US and work in big tech. Um, I also, you know, had this chip on my shoulder of not really having a network from outside of, of Southeast Asia, uh, that I wanted to kind of invest in. Uh, and, and obviously at that time, a bit more obsessed about brand name and titles. Mm. So I, I yeah. saw that going to business school would, would kind of help. Mm. Um, um, what I ended up doing though, and I, and I decided in my final couple of months during my sabbatical was I was going to try to work in big tech directly. Um, so applied to a ton of jobs in the valley, was, was interviewing a fair bit, um, decided that that would be a route to get the same kind of education I would have gotten. So I was trying to hack the process, mm, right? I, yeah. I'd get educated the way an MBA would. I'd get a network that's very specifically in the Valley in tech. And, you know, brand name in a big tech would kind of equi be equivalent. You know, yeah, that was my my sort of equation. Um, didn't work out because visas <laughs> in the US, uh, you know, yeah. are pain. Um, Still are. <laughs> yeah. But it gave me the resolve to... To, you know, like I, I became stubborn then, like that I wanted to be in tech. After meeting those entrepreneurs, I felt like I had what it took. Um, and, 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 you know, it burnt this big fire to do something big after mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And so looking back now, do you think business school would have been a good value proposition for what you ended up doing eventually that Lazada or what you want to do now in the future? Hmm. That is a great question. Um, I don't think it's right to live with any sort of regrets. And when th that kind of question, that kind of line of questioning always leads to, you know, ruminating on, on alternate futures that have never happened, yes. right? So it's kind of a pointless path. That being said, um, I think every year of your life is how you choose to use it and how you choose to apply that in the future, right? I'd like to believe that my years at Lazada was like an MBA on steroids, plus a little bit of startup education. Yeah. Um, and I was getting paid to do it. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. So, but then again, you know, a lot of people who go to B school will tell you that 20 years down the road, post B school, when they were being, uh, you know, up for a CEO position, right. Mm. And two people on the board were from the same school they went to. Mm. That's when it paid off. Mm. Right. So I can't be arrogant enough to tell you that, yeah, you know, I've, I've got it done mm. because I can't tell you where exactly those kinds of decisions will have to happen again. Yeah. I guess it depends if you're putting yourself in that kind of path where that kind of name and recognition would matter, right? Correct. Like, so if you want to be a Fortune 500 CEO, yeah, yeah maybe it might have mattered. Yeah. But, you know, maybe your your life goals diverge from that too also. Absolutely. Right? So I think you're right. It's it's almost hard to kind of see the unlimited futures. Correct. And, and think about that. Correct. Uh, but that being said, you know, what kind of advice would you give people in a similar position Maybe they're at the end of their tenure at consulting or investment banking, or maybe they're thinking about business school. Nice. Um, I so I like to put it this way, right? I think that everyone, there's a saying that I remember, promotions are, are earned, mm. not given, yeah. right? When you start to fill up a certain role, that's when you get promoted to that role because people will recognize that you're already doing uh, something beyond your yeah. job grade, right? Yeah. I feel like every stage of life is like that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So like if you think about an MBA and what you are going to get out of it, you can actively try to learn those things right now and see whether or not it's going to work for you, right? So mm -hmm. an example is I, I actually also applied to like master's program for computer science uh, at some point. And, and, and as I was doing that, I realized I needed to prepare a lot better. I started to code myself. And in a year of pre preparation, I realized I could learn this on my own and teach myself without necessarily paying for an education, right? Yeah. 
So I think the future is going to be one where self-learning is way more important than mm-hmm. than being part of a, an externalized program, right? Mm-hmm. And network is something you can also build uh through your own credibility, through your yes. own accountability, through actively reaching out to people, which means all those things you get from an MBA can be fragmented and approached in different parts yeah. of your life, right? Yeah. So obviously not a path for everyone, uh and it depends on what you want, right? It, yeah. But I would say this, if your choice is to become an entrepreneur, um I don't know if B school is the best place. Yeah. I th- I yeah. think you could learn a lot of that on just doing. Yeah. I mean there's a lot of stuff through the experience they also won't teach you. Um and I like what you talked about. Uh I feel that also going through a similar process by experiencing it it's probably like almost as good or even better than the business school by building a few startups. Mm. Um and it's like you said we had other people paying for our experience to kind of learn at the same time we're returning value too. Absolutely. Otherwise we wouldn't have survived, yeah. right? Um and I found it interesting because you mentioned that was your thought process while you were applying for big tech companies. You thought that um you actually could get an MBA by just going direct to the source. Yeah. Uh Do you think that's you thinking back about it and processing it or you was that actually your mindset back then? That was my mindset back yeah. then. Uh that being said, I think for visa purposes, if you're trying to migrate to the US, then going to B school then getting a big tech job is a lot easier. Yes, correct. Yeah. 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 So on your journey to looking for tech, you actually ended up on joining Lazada, which is in back in Asia. Yeah. So, how did that happen? So, I I was doing a ton of interviewing in the US. I came back to Malaysia with PCG while waiting for visas to be worked out. It took a couple of months before I realized that, you know, things weren't going to work out very smoothly. Um so I ended up uh looking at what I could do here. It's getting itchy to actually start something of my own. Uh and this was really like an interesting period. Like so 20 uh, what was that 20 2014. 2014 was was literally when Uber was sort of in its growth phase Netflix was blowing up oh, yeah. uh, but they all weren't in Asia yet Correct. you know so the opportunity to build these kinds of titans in Southeast Asia was huge um um Lazada was about a year a year and a half old something like this maybe two 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 plus two, yeah. yeah um so it was like an interesting time to to get things started here um spoke to a bunch of of uh, investors people that were putting money into uh Southeast Asia realized e-commerce was going to blow up uh, i think like many other people someone probably one of the summer brothers hit me on on linkedin mm. um so i yeah, i bit had a conversation had a couple of conversations with people at uh um Lazada at the time some of them XBCG so you actually reached out i reached out i reached out i spoke to people who were in at the time mm-hmm. Um not all of them were positive. <laughs> uh as a rocket alumni as well, I think you can you yeah. can understand some of that for sure. Yeah. Uh so then uh so before that actually no one from Rocket actually approached you with that. No, no, they did. Yeah. They did. Yeah. So so someone from Rocket approached me on LinkedIn. I think it was I, I can't remember who it was, but some someone from Rocket approached me. And then how come you didn't want to join back then? Wow. So I think the first when they were launching, you know, pre-launch they were they were trying to hit consultants, right? This was like even yes. before I went to the US, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. At that point um I was, you know, A I wanted to build some experience in consulting and B 
I, I was kind of doubtful that someone from outside of Southeast Asia would be able to execute. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I had this, this sort of fantasy of founder led companies being the only way mm-hmm. to grow. And this idea of startup studios ever working was just, you know, it, mm-hmm. it discounted it. Did you know about startup studios back then? I knew Rocket was doing that mm. and I knew that they hadn't succeeded yet. Yeah, not in a big way or No. Yeah. Um so we discussed last time, you know, when you did join, uh, Tesco was a majority shareholder but mm. Rocket was a minority at the point. But however, the culture was still very much Rocket Internet. What was the culture like when you first joined? Um so when I joined Rocket was still this was pre-Tamasic. Rocket was very much in control. Um very aggressive culture growth 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 at all cost um very analytical and and data driven um and it was the the type of company where you um you know you had a lot of smart people working the ex investment bankers ex consultants the pressure was real very international group as well a lot of people from europe so it made it made working there quite fun um but i'd have to say like in terms of the the learning curve it was incredible right mm-hmm. so what the what the Samo brothers had done was they inculcated a culture of having incredible attention to detail yes. all the time right so you'd have these calls where hundreds of you were on that call and um and you get asked a question about a particular number or some KPI some metric you know lost in the you know what is the CPC for Samsung on on search engine marketing this week you know, <laughs> yeah but you have to know these it's things correct, right correct so and if you didn't you know you'd be in trouble so yeah. it it built this you know strong levels of anxiety <laughs> but at the same time that anxiety allowed you to you know become someone who was always aware of what was going on and be able to shift and move things really fast there was con- constantly a sense of urgency right yeah. i'd never felt anything like that before and sometimes i coach startups today and when i look at them and their utter lack of urgency i wonder you know <laughs> if they would have benefited from a couple of months in that yeah. kind of environment interesting so is it a different sense of urgency for consulting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Completely different. I think I think in consulting you have a clear deadline. Yes. Uh there's a you know there's a there's a case team meeting, there's there's the final client meeting. You have these these markers on your calendar, you know what you're working towards. Very clear. It's very clear and and you know it's going to end. Yes. And yes, you're going to yes. move on, right? And and you have this clear deliverable at the end which is a very pretty deck, yeah. right? Um it's not the same when you're running a startup. When you're running a startup, you've got ridiculous KPIs to hit. Uh the funny thing is because a lot of us are young and from consulting, we don't even realize that those numbers are impossible, right? <laughs> yeah. And you just go, "All right, I can do that. I can I can grow this yeah. business, you know, yeah. 20%, you know, day on day." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever, I can do that. Right? You want me to launch five new things this month? Fine, I'll do it. Yeah. You you almost don't realize what you're incapable of doing. Yeah. And then you end up doing extraordinary things as a result, right? Mm-hmm. Um so it breeds this interesting culture of like super urgent like nothing is ever able to wait you know everything has to be done yesterday and yeah. and, and you plan like 2 weeks in advance you know a month if you're lucky essentially you're you're facing existential uncertainty all the time yeah. and that's i guess you know why it's very uh important to have a, a culture that kind of drives you yeah uh, you know i guess minus the toxic part but i think you're right a lot of startups these days just don't understand that 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 need of uh speed and detail to kind of make success happen you know in very uncertain yeah. uh, environments or, or to not have an investor shouting uh behind your back to grow at a certain rate every month yeah right because that that pressure is like with rocket internet it's real and you end up trying to invent new things 
constantly yeah. to be able to grow yeah. like that right like yeah. i don't think that we would have had to launch marketplace and then cross border in the kind of speed we did mm. if not for that kind yeah. of pressure yeah and i touched upon this in one of my other episodes i i think that the Samwer brothers had a lot of foresight that this was an arbitrage opportunity. So the speed was essential. Because I think if you look at the alumni from Rocket Internet, a lot of them probably are doing it better than what Rocket can do now. Yeah. Right. So they kind of understood they needed to close that gap. And I think um, picking the right people from consulting and investment banking, that was very critical. And then developing that culture. And it ended up working. I think at the end, they reaped the benefit of it. Right. Yeah. And uh, the flip side, you know, there was a lot of, you know, toxic or not healthy stuff, but, you know, at the end of the end, like you said, you learn a lot, you grow a lot. Uh, it helps shape you and push you along your journey further. Right? Absolutely. Um, so then how did you make the jump from, because you joined as a VP, right, mm-hmm. in marketing, and then you eventually become the, the CMO. How does that happen? Yeah. Um, so I joined as, I think the title was something like VP of sales and campaign yeah. planning. Um which essentially meant how do we make as much money as possible with <laughs> as little yeah. budget. Uh, so they, they picked me like ex consultant, and gave him some Excel, let him crunch some stuff out and he'll figure it out. Yeah. And so I had like a very small team at the time. It was like uh, some kids who were doing pricing, some kids who were doing BI. Uh, everyone was very young. Um, and all I was trying to do in those days was trying to figure out what kind of promo codes to launch, <laughs> uh, how to bid on, on specific things so that we'd be able to, to sell more on Facebook. So it, it, marketing kind of, uh, I don't even know if the role was actually in marketing the, at first, but it was a, it was an interesting role that was basically an optimization and analytics role. Uh, what happened then was the CMO at the time, um, uh, left to a competitor. So it was a snap departure. Uh, so he left and on the very same day I was called into the room and they said, uh, listen, you know, you know, we've lost, uh, the head of marketing. So we, we need someone to fill in for a while. We think you can sit in to do that. This was like, I think, uh, less than a month into me being in the job. So I was like, Hey, <laughs> quick promotion. In. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. But, uh, I also was completely not ready for this. I had not really managed a significant team at the time. I, barely knew how to manage a PNL. Mm. I, I was in and over my shoulders with marketing. I, you know, there's so many three little, ac- three letter acronyms fly- flying around <laughs> nice. and you don't know what's going on. So I inherited this, this, uh, this, this huge beast, which was interesting, but I had no time at all to pick things up. Yeah. Um, and with the context that they were still trying to fill up that role. So, you know, yeah. I'd still see people coming in the interview and be like, Oh, I hope this guy <laughs> takes, you know, takes it because I am struggling. Yeah. Uh, but it never happened. And six months later, they were like, listen, you're fine. Let's just put you in that role permanently. <laughs> yeah. So, so last time we talked about your, your struggles, um, you know, you did not do well at all. Right. Yeah. So what was that process like to be coming from completely clueless to becoming competent within six months? Got it. Um, so I mean, I, I beat myself up a lot and people, I, I don't know if, you know, it's saying I'm, I'm completely clueless, even though I think I was, uh, would fit, but a lot of marketing, if you think about it, right, is how do you persuade millions of people to do a specific action to meet your objectives? Correct. Right. And there's books written about it. There's a lot of, of thought process behind content and, and creativity and revenue management, revenue genera- generation. But when you look at the um, principles behind it, you draw it down to data very, very easily, mm. right? So um, at least when you don't have much budget and you're playing around on, on like pure performance marketing, yeah. right? So in the beginning, having that analytical mindset, that consulting style rigor really helped. Mm-hmm. Um 
but you know, as we spoke about, you know, there's this first order, second order, third order effects, and and I'll give you two examples of how things backfired. So the first is I remember uh, one day looking at at revenues and realizing we were behind targets for the day, and said, you know, if I, if we launch a a store wide voucher of like twelve point five percent, let it run for two hours, we'll hit our targets uh, within an hour of me launching that I get a call from the guy who heads customer service and he says, Hey, do you have any idea why people are canceling their orders from the last few days? Um, and then I put two and two together and I realized it's because this voucher has now, you know, become viral and people are canceling everything they've ordered. So, advantage of the yeah, new voucher. which now has created this huge backlog with operations and warehouse. And now everyone's upset with me. <laughs> uh, there's nothing I can do about it. And, and that's second order effects. But if you look at third order effects, you know, a year in people are, don't buy unless there's vouchers, right? It takes yes. years to, to, to get yeah. people off that addiction. Yeah. Um, so, so there, there was like a huge learning process with understanding that, which was kind of why I left consulting. Mm. But the second, and I guess the more, dangerous lesson there was um um i tried to apply a very heavy-handed analytical consulting style uh style of management right very Mm -hmm. kpi driven very objective oriented and that's not how people want to be managed Mm -hmm. right so uh, it was a crazy driver for results and and actually we, we we delivered terrific results the first year there but at a huge cost of of people happiness and yeah. and and how people and, and to be honest like you know when you read books about steve jobs and and you uh you're surrounded by people with that kind of culture you think hey this is how you should do in fact yeah. i don't think that is even my normal management style and i pushed really hard to become this like aggressive megalomaniac or yeah. data-driven uh you know a slave driver and um um it made me then realized, like, you know, again, second order effects, right? That people hated that and they weren't able to work functionally. So I kind of flipped the, to the reverse and, and decided to have a style of management that was a bit more hands off and let people go free. I think my team had the happiest time then <laughs> uh, and were able to do lots of cool creative stuff, but then performance started to drop, right? Yeah. It took me about 18 months or so to develop a management structure and style that allowed people to feel heavily motivated while also delivering mm-hmm. extraordinary performance. And a lot of that came to a structure, focus, discipline, and like some little things that we did um, that, that enabled that kind of, of happiness. I think I had one of the highest ENPS, uh, you know, employee happiness scores mm. at the time, but also we were hitting the results. The targets. Yeah, targets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because... It's interesting you talk about the early days of your, your developing management and, and learning about leadership. Um, but wasn't everyone else at the time a hard ass and driving and just being very terrible? <laughs> they, well, not everyone. There were many who were like that. Yeah. But um, it, it got filtered down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you were within closed doors with a select group of people, you, yeah. you kind of didn't know this existed. And would you say your team would be unique, how you'd kind of transform the culture over time? Was everyone else doing this too? Um, you know, it was dangerous because if you were too soft, you got killed. Yeah, right? correct. Yeah. So they were, I, I don't think there were very many people who were doing that. Mm. So eventually uh, we talked about how you know, quote unquote, Lazada was going to run out of money. You know, they were on their last bit of uh, runway for the, the month. And then the Alibaba deal kind of came through. But, but of course, you mentioned that, you know, the people who had invest, invested in Lazada uh, were well capitalized. They weren't going to let it die anyway. Absolutely. Uh, so, I, I think that there's a rumor that, you know, we we're going to run out of money has been 
overdone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sensationalized, dramatized, makes for a good story, right? Correct. Um, and well, it's interesting you say that because it, it, when people mention this story, they, they talk about the genius of Max Bittner and his foresight of being able to close a deal that close on a, on a, on a deadline. But in reality, I think probably Lazada would have found money either way, you know? Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I don't know how much of a cost it would have been. Cause I, I think that, that, you know, that story that we successfully sold to Alibaba has become something that, you know, changed the landscape of oh, yes. tech in Southeast Asia. It was the biggest exit. Southeast Asia has ever had. Yeah. Uh, and, and it made us think it was possible here. And a lot of us wear that as a badge of pride. Right. Mm. Um, so, you know, that dramatic story to some extent is true. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it, if, if it hadn't had, like, if it hadn't have, have, have happened, then maybe a lot of people would have been, um, disillusioned. Mm. Not as, as as sticky to the system as they would have been. True. So so I mean, it is important to have a good story it has yeah. more benefit, but there's more to it behind, behind the scenes, right? Correct. So eventually, Alibaba does take over, and we we kind of talked about um, the the merger. Uh, how was that experience transitioning from this kind of European hard culture into this now Chinese culture? You know, what, what was the experience, and how did the culture change? Mm. It was a very slow transition, actually. So I think the. Um, um, you know, interestingly enough, we started speaking to them in 2015, um, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure Max Stein, some of these other guys met them a lot earlier. But some of us in management had to start to meet people from Alibaba in maybe November, December. Mm -hmm. uh, there were interviews where we were interviewed for our uh, character and our attitudes. Mm -hmm. Uh, very, very tense interviews. In fact, some of them were actually more intense than my interview getting into Lazada. Mm. Um, but then, you know, the, the deal came through in April of 2016. Um, from then onwards, it was this, at least for a year, it was an approach of come to us if you have questions, uh, you know, and we'll guide you. And so we set up lots of meetings where we would fly to Hangzhou and meet their teams there, try to understand how they did specific things, incredible learning opportunities, just seeing the scale that they were able to do things. Mm -hmm. um, but um, about a year in, like they, all, they had already plans about how to integrate. Um, and it was, a, was smooth and then it became sudden. Right. So mm. there was a, about a year to 18 months of like very slow learn from us. And then gradually several, uh, Alibaba people had senior positions within Lazada, um, crucial positions, which made sense given it was their largest, biggest investment outside of, right. of China. Uh, and so it was positions that enabled that, that, that merger to happen. So I think it was finance, um, HR and, and tech. Yeah. Tech, without a doubt, they were far superior. And so we undertook a project that was the largest project that Alibaba himself that they had ever taken in terms of revamping the technology stack underneath mm -hmm. Lazada. It was an incredible project. And that's when we really got to see the culture. Um, so you know, Alibaba was very famous for having a super work hard ethic as well. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, given that it's such a desirable company to work for in China, they have queues of people lining up yes. for positions and are able to you know you meet some of the smartest people ever and they're working ridiculously hard mm -hmm. right uh, and that culture kind of permeated through especially in this project to, to develop their their tech stack mm -hmm. yeah and so the did, was this plan of you know going slow then you know all of a sudden really hard was was that part of it the whole time or were they trying to learn during this process i honestly don't know i i would assume in in retrospect that 
a much more and, and I say this with the context that I did lots of post merger integrations at BCG. Integrations are tough. Yeah. Right. And uh, integrations of this size are very tough. Like it's very easy to say, oh, I'd like to acquire you and leave you at arm's length and let you do your own thing. But then investors want synergies. Uh, you want growth, right? Yeah. Um, but then you draw a very fine line because if you take over, then you completely lose the culture and the intrinsic values for why you acquired in the first place. Mm -hmm. You might as well just have built. Correct. Right. Um, uh, and, and so there was a lot of learning for both sides in the way they approached it. Mm -hmm. What was the most maybe contrasting or shocking thing that was different from Rocket versus, you know, Alibaba? There were tons. So, one was fundamentally Alibaba believes in building platforms that mm -hmm. are able to self-govern and run autonomously, mm -hmm. right? So they saw things that we saw as outcomes, okay. as outputs, right? Okay. Or the other way around. Like, so, yeah. so context, for example, GMV was a massive KPI for everyone, right? That's correct. Alibaba saw GMV as an, as an outcome if you got a couple of things right. And those things became KPIs, mm. right? So they were like, even if you don't hit GMV first, if you keep focused on these couple of things, GMV will come, GMV will come stop chasing GMV. Don't do stupid shit to get GMV. Would, right. would you say that's more of a long-term perspective then? Absolutely. They were, they had the foresight and also the, 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 they could afford to think that way. Yes. Right. Yes. We didn't. We didn't. Yeah. We, we came from a culture of like, uh, cutthroat rush for your budget every month. Yeah. Let's right? say the next day. <laughs> yeah. Live for the next day. Right. And then now suddenly people are asking you for five year plans. You're like, five years? <laughs> what? We're going to be around that long. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's a huge mindset shift. One, that we were going to exist. Two, that, um, that, you know, we had to think a lot differently about how we had to build for the future and then change the mindset that we had in terms of KPIs, technology, data, training, uh, and ecosystem. So i just give you a wild example. We were working together with Alibaba to launch the DFTZ in Malaysia. So yes. DFTZ for context is a warehouse that allows speedy deliveries from China into Malaysia by, by hosting them within a certain warehouse uh, close to the airport. Um, and I remember having conversations about whether we should open it to other e-commerce sites. Mm. And we obviously came in with a mindset to not, yeah. right? And I remember everyone in the Alibaba side going, what? <laughs> but if you don't open it up, you don't build the ecosystem. Like yeah. they put the ecosystem ahead of the company, mm -hmm. which was incredible, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they were like, they, they, like, you win by building the right ecosystem. So this is a very interesting point, and I don't think we touched upon this last time. Um, so e-commerce in Southeast Asia and Asia, right? So we kind of have Alibaba as a big player. Uh, we have Amazon present too now, right? And uh, we talked briefly last time how I was a little bit biased because of my Western upbringing that I prefer Amazon experience, mm. right? And I felt the evolution of e-commerce probably goes through these kind of consolidation phases where you have classifieds and then you get eBay out of that. But then you know, this matures into Amazon and that matures into, you know, if the market's big enough, you can get very big verticals. But we kind of see a different kind of evolution uh, from China, mm -hmm. right? And how they innovate and how they also think about um, the space. And, you know, like, for example, you said platform, mm -hmm. which is like kind of super app or this kind of thing, right? Absolutely. Um, what do you think is the next evolution then? You know, especially that we have something like Amazon and Alibaba here. Mm -hmm. How is that? How do you think that's going to play out? And um, what do you think we're going to see that's very different? That's innovation from Asia versus, say, the West? 
You know, it's it's funny because um, many times in the past, I used to think how the West was so much ahead of Asia. And yeah. then you spend a bit of time in China and you realize that China is on its own different universe, universe right? Yeah. Um, you know, just to give you a crazy example, I remember being in a small village in China, uh, going to this restaurant, not knowing how to speak a single word of Mandarin. They not knowing how to speak English. I sit down at the table. There's a QR code on the table. I scan it. It pops open a WeChat uh, chat with the restaurant, uh, which has the first chat being a catalog of items. I select the items I want to eat, uh, click yes, it goes into the ordering system within the restaurant. My food comes and I pay via the WeChat app, mm. all within an interface of chat, yeah. right? Such a technology doesn't even exist in yeah. uh, the West yet. Facebook's trying to build that with Messenger. So you ask me what's going to happen. I think fundamentally, you know, this is a very interesting uh, growth of e-commerce, right? For example, what you've typically seen in Western countries is the growth of brand.coms. Yes, right? correct. When people get used to buying on e-commerce, then Apple.com, Nike.com, L'Oreal.com, any.com start to pop up. This didn't happen in China. In China, you fundamentally have Taobao, which is the... Um, you can say it's eBay, but really it's a lot bigger than that because small merchants are able to sell on Taobao and they are the bulk of the people selling on... So it's a mix of eBay plus super small Amazon merchants, right? So mom and pop shops, yeah. really anyone. And and the scale is massive. Like there are companies on Taobao that are, you know, have had IPOs of more than a billion USD, mm. right? That's the largest. Within, within Taobao. Right? Within yeah. Taobao. That's yeah. a seller. Yeah. On Taobao, a seller, yeah. a seller, right? Yeah. Um, and then on the other side, you've got Timo. And what Timo is, or Tianmao, uh, is Skycat. Skycat. Okay. Right? Uh, is Tmall is basically a house for all brand.coms, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 that becomes, you know, it, it was a way for them to circumvent this idea, uh, of, of, you know, Taobao having counterfeit goods, low quality goods. Tmall was specifically only open to brands that had reputation, right? Mm -hmm. And they really created this awesome marketing strategy of building 1111. That was Daniel Zhang's idea. Uh, of building this Tmall cat that was everywhere on billboards, of launching Maserati, of launching, you know, uh, luxury brands on Tmall to create this idea that it was a, a mall separate from Taobao, right? Um, and so that was T Taobao's and Tmall's genius, right? Now, where that has gone is incredible, right? So Taobao today has opened up the idea of social commerce, of conversational commerce, right? Yeah. Chat is massive. Yeah. In fact, I don't know, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but live streaming on Taobao has become one of the largest sources of conversion on the app, which means people watch influencers peddling out products and talking about yeah. them and they love to waste time watching these videos and then they buy the stuff yeah. active, actively. Essentially, they demarketized infomercials, right? Absolutely. So, and they brought it to social media platforms. So as I think you, you're kind of right where you're talking about um, social commerce. I feel it's a much bigger force than say how it is in the US. Absolutely. Um, do you think this is a function because technology skipped a, like, skipped a generation in, in China, right? Because... No, I think, I think it's a, it's a fundamental factor of a couple of things. One is trust, right? In the US, Amazon is arguably the most trusted company in the US. I, I remember seeing statistics yeah. that people trust it even more than Apple, right? Mm. And so when you have a company like that, that has so much trust, they don't need to do a lot, right? Mm. Meanwhile, you've got something like Taobao, where it's just rife with, you know, questionable goods or mm -hmm. quality of goods, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Bose with a C. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nike with the, yeah, with two Y's, yeah. right? So 
So as a result, conversations, seeing someone, building that kind of trust, you can say it's Asian, but it, it like it's hard to say whether it's due to historical reasons or it's due to the way Taobao itself was based, right? Mm-hmm. So they built this layer of trust on top of it using conversations and social yeah. media. Um, so the platform itself was able, and going back to what we spoke about platforms, they were able to disintermediate trust. They were like, you don't have to trust us. You have to trust the people that are on the platform. Mm-hmm. And if you find someone who's untrustworthy, don't buy from them. It's not our fault. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I start to understand that behavior more because I, I shop ever since the lockdown I, I shop more online and um, yeah I have to kind of flex my muscle where I have to pay attention to detail and actually engage with the seller there you go and, and then you get a feel for it then once you kind of understand the process it does start to work absolutely right? and then uh, whereas like I, but I still do buy on Amazon and it is nice to be brainless and just click and it does arrive and you, you just know? arrive and, and yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, issues yeah, right? Yeah. but like but, it's so different because with yeah. Taobao what they've done is they've trained merchants to think about the kind of pictures they put up try to understand mm. what's the best way to run it uh, how to converse with people most effectively to get the highest number of conversions and so every purchase becomes conversational mm. yeah so then on the other hand you know we have uh, the Amazon method right they take a long time to kind of understand the market like very long time and they're not going to, you know, outperform uh, the local competitors who are number one for a long time. So the, the obvious example would be like uh, in Europe, long time, they were just laggards. And that's why um, Zalando did so well in Europe because they were the first, I think, fashion e-commerce people hit 1 billion in 18 months in terms mm-hmm. of revenue, right? That's why the Samuel Brothers got really famous for fashion. And then uh, you look at India, uh, at Flipkart, number one in every t- tier one city, but eventually completely flipped where Amazon is now number one in every tier one and then Flipkart's number one in tier three. Mm. Um, how do you see that playing out maybe for Southeast Asia then? Oh, very heavy question. So um, I think that e-commerce itself is going to fundamentally change, mm. right? So what do I mean by this? If you look at the story of e-commerce in Southeast Asia, it's not a story of convenience as has been the story in big urban cities in the West. Mm-hmm. It is a story of access, Right. The largest customer base in China for Taobao is not people in Shanghai and Beijing. It's people in tier three, tier four cities. Because if you want to buy a fancy handbag from Chanel, there is no store in your small town uh, somewhere close to Julian. Correct. Right. The only way for you to get that is to buy it online. Yeah. Right, so it's it's interesting because in a city that big, that's what has happened. Mm. Right now, if you look at Southeast Asia. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things. One is it, that story is quite similar in the larger, well, we've got slightly dense urban agglomerations like Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, Metro Manila, and Jakarta. But that being said, there's still a sizable population outside of those agglomerations which do need this access, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one, right? So whether or not somebody is able to get these kinds of things to them and build that trust in the same place, uh, that's going to be a challenge for whoever chooses to play in there. Some have been successful. Shopee is a perfect example of this. They came from nowhere to become arguably, you know, you know, almost neck to neck with Lazada and, and certain geographies yeah. um, by building that trust, by having this incredibly uh, catchy tagline and, and marketing efforts that that went super grassroots. They yeah. they 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 flipped the whole messaging. Uh, but those aren't the only challenges. If you look at e-commerce, e-commerce is about solving two issues. One, logistics. Yes, correct. Two, payments. Yeah. There are a number of players in these markets who can get into e-commerce with a little bit of work. Grab being one of them, mm. right? Yeah. Grab's got logistics, Grab's got payments. They're already someone in e-commerce with food, with mart, with They're fresh. starting, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, how much does it take to link up to the POSs of Tesco and these other big players who have warehouses, right? It's not too difficult. Mm. Facebook has Marketplace. Facebook's invested in Gojek. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So with the Gojek partnership, what could that mean for Facebook Marketplace working together with a logistics slash payment player mm-hmm. like Gojek, right? Yeah. So uh, I think that e-commerce in Southeast Asia still has probably round two, round three could happen in the next 10-15 years. I, I totally agree, but only because I'm not fully satisfied with my current experience from, from a user perspective. But I, I think you're completely right. You know, there's these other players and it speaks to the nature of Southeast Asia, how it's a collection of countries that are different. Mm. And so that prevents you taking one model and scaling it in the same way as you could in America or China. Yeah. Right. You can't just bring this and, you know, your, your regulators are different. Your laws are different. Uh, the behavior is different, right? So I think what Grab has done well is they, through Rideshare, they kind of established their base. Uh, Lazada had to build it from scratch because of Rocket. Yeah. Right. They, they kind of forced their way into it. Um, and, you know, there's other players like you that can do it. And it'd be interesting to see how Amazon probably kind of fits into that to compete too. And yeah, but if you think about Amazon, right? When they launched in Southeast Asia, they launched with their most premium version yes. of Amazon, Amazon Prime, right? Yes. And if you think about that, it makes sense. In a, in a place like Singapore, which was super packed, that's the one thing that makes sense there, yeah. right? Yeah. You you cut uh, straight to the top and you try to do something a bit different. And to be honest with Amazon, they've got a big fight in India. Oh, yeah. Uh, they've got yeah. lots of the uh, effort based out of there. Still, still. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right. The story, I think, you know, it's not going to turn out probably how, how we think. And there's a lot more chapters to happen. Yeah. Um, so then you kind of ended up leaving Lazada. Were you burned out? Ooh, uh, burnt out is a very strong word. Um I think that after five years of doing something as intense as that, you definitely do feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, knowing that it's your baby, knowing that, you know, you've, you've done this amazing thing, you have a great team to work with, you, you tend not to, you know, lose the fire, right? Yeah. So generally, I, I still enjoyed working there. I had great fun with my team. For me, it was the context of one, um, trying to understand what else was out there that needed um, attention that I could start to spend my energy on something new and productive. Uh, one, two was um, a consideration of whether or not being in that organization longer would actually fulfill me on a personal mm-hmm. level, right? Yeah. Um, I saw my path within that organization becoming, uh, you know, a senior executive within the group, within the regional yeah. uh, team, uh, growing into Alibaba's regional team. I spent a lot of my last year in in Hangzhou um, and realizing that I wanted the the urgency of the, the early years of building something fresh. Um, so I left, um, um, you know, with a heavy heart. I loved, I loved working there. It was super hard. And I remember like, you know, dilly-dallying on a decision for months and, yeah. and, and trying to talk to people about what else I could do, uh, within the organization. But eventually I did. Um, and, um, you know, in retrospect, incredible decision. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how that? process unfolds of you wanting to leave such a position like that like because I, th- I feel like you know maybe entrepreneurs or other people around our age are probably going through something similar right it's at a time where there's big transition in yeah careers you know you accomplish a lot after almost something close to a decade right from bcg to lazada yeah right? how did you how does that come about and how do you figure out and navigate that um Tough question. So I, 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 so drawing from not just my experience, but from the people that were around me, right? I think there's sort of three approaches. You've got approach one, um, which a very close friend of mine from Lazada, who's in Singapore now, launched one of the best funded startups post Lazada. Um, he knew what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. and he was talking about it 
mm. in the lead up to him leaving right yeah. and i remember him leaving like a couple of months before we had our options vest because he just like he was like this thing is so important that i need to leave and do it and mm-hmm. we were like almost in shock that he was doing that right <laughs> yeah, yeah so you have group one that's like they're very rare and usually when they do it their heart and soul is into it and and you know do it like if you know there's something else you want to do go yeah, right correct. then you've got group number two uh, and there's a couple of people in lazada who left a very similar path where they invest in something with 5% of their time they realize that something they could do usually it's a problem that they were solving within lazada and they were like hey this could be a thing that i could do on my own and then they gradually decide to leave and do that full time right mm-hmm. i would say 90% of people fall within that bucket right mm-hmm. um and then you've got the last group which is like me uh and and that's basically people who say this e-commerce journey was interesting but i think that there could be a variety of other opportunities out there that are outside of e-commerce. I want to be able to explore and understand what else is out there. I need to be brave enough to sit this out and look academically almost like what I did five years ago <laughs> uh, and then try to understand where the opportunities yeah. are. Okay, so and I guess now you kind of came to the decision where you did leave and you are now an EIR at 500 Startups. I was. So that was. was a, yeah. Okay, so yeah. what what is exactly an EIR and what does 500 Startups do? Um, so 500 Startups is the uh, an early stage investor. Um, they've invested, I think, in more than 3,000 companies globally. In Southeast Asia, they were an early investor in Grab, in Bukalapak, in I forget which other unicorn, but they've been very successful in um in large scale investing. Um, and um, what happened was Petronas, which is Malaysia's largest company, um, was launching a corporate venture capital arm. Uh, so about 350 million USD to invest in startups. Mm-hmm. And as a part of that process, they partnered together with 500 startups to launch an accelerator in um, Malaysia. Um, I had just left Lazada. I spent a couple of months traveling. I was actually in Berlin. I, I went to film school mm. in Berlin. I was uh, getting actively involved in the startup community there, trying to understand if, you know, what was happening across the globe um, in technology. Uh, I got a call about this accelerator that was launching and it seemed uh, interesting at the time. So I thought I'll come back and spend a couple of months working on this. My reasons for doing it was I wanted to understand here what were the kind of tech startups that were actively uh uh, you know, in the process of growing. And I also wanted to scratch the itch of being in that zero to one early stage, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I, I got to work directly with them. So an EIR is basically um, with the context of, of Petronas and 500 Startups, it was like a resident mentor to the startups. I, I became a part of their businesses. I'd helped them run. I had 20 startups to babysit which was an incredible, incredible process, basically coaching, getting into that mentorship behavior uh, and and trying to understand all these different startups across solar and ad tech and, you know, coding technology mm. and AI. Um, so awesome, awesome journey for a couple of months. Uh, it was a, it was just a short term project, so I'm not with uh, with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then yeah, the project was over. It seems they've been a little bit quiet in the region. I saw last saw a report in 2018 where they list all the unicorns and the performance, but then haven't heard much. Are, are they still very active, or what can we expect? From- as far as I can see, uh, so not from 500 can't comment for them, but yeah. but um, they seem to be very active in yeah. market and com- com- very heavily investing. Are, are you familiar with uh, the 500? from San Francisco yes. and US how would you compare the what you see in Asia um so i've i've look my 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 context is the the people i met from 500 in the US uh, happen to be from the operations team yeah. um and um 
you know, I think what Kylie has done here in Malaysia is incredible. Investing in these companies at an early stage. Um, some people say it's pre and pre. No, it really isn't, right? They've been pre-targeted with the kind of startups they they select. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know the share of investment within Southeast Asia versus globally, but I would think that Southeast Asia has become the largest investment ground for mm. 500, right? And I think a lot of that comes to philosophy, right? So yeah. um, Kylie has said this thing, which is he wants to provide weapons of mass creation to people, mm. right? And he fundamentally views it as his mission to try to enable as many entrepreneurs as possible. Yeah. I used to believe that, that, the startup studio model where people are given coaching and, and empowerment and mentorship is the only way to grow ecosystems. And now I realize that, you know, just there are founders who understand problems and systems that, that you know, in their own way and just providing them that half a million capital, a million dollars capital in the early stages is enough mm. to completely change their journeys, right? Mm, so this mass scale deployment to a very targeted group of individuals, yeah. uh, which when you think about it, you know, 500 investments across 600 million people, that's one out of a million, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not the spray and pray that people think, and I think it genuinely works. I, mean, I would love to get into to spray and pray, but maybe for another time. Um, uh, there's so much to, to uncover there uh, in terms of VC, and I hope to get a few more VCs on the podcast to kind of discuss the strategy. Of this. <laughs> and I, I've come to some of my own conclusions recently about it. Um, but, you know, so... Uh, we'll skip that, but you know. So recently, Sequoia just raised a billion USD uh, from the India arm, right? And then it's supposed to be shared with Southeast Asia. Absolutely. How do you think that will affect the region? Um, you know, I think there's a ton of opportunity. Like, I think so. In a lot of entrepreneurship ecosystems that have succeeded, they tend to have, uh, you know, done a couple of things right. One is they have the right kind of um, technical know-how and, you know, universities that are developing, you know, super smart kids that are able to build these startups. And then you've got funding that comes and matches the kind of talent within these ecosystems, right? In Southeast Asia, I think fundamentally when it comes to pure, you know, tech, tech, um, whether that's deep tech or, or, um, you know, software, there could be a shortage of talent in terms of, you know, coming up with, interesting new um, innovations. That being said, um, I think there's enough of a push for people to create interesting new things, mm. um, either initially starting by copying stuff in the West and then you know moving somewhere else, the yes. way Gojek has, the way yeah. Grab has, or absolutely solving just localized problems, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that having those the kind of funding that Sequoia is putting or any other VC is actually the right time. Southeast Asia, 600 million people, fragmented, lots of problems to be solved. Uh, you know, anyone hearing this podcast, if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, now is the time. Yeah. Uh, we, I, I would say that 10 years ago, that was a great time, but you're right. I think there's another inflection point where yeah. it's, it's, you're going to see another big wave, a lot more innovation, yeah. a lot more growth. Absolutely. Okay. So we have time for maybe one last question. I had three more, but you know, maybe for another session, I guess. Uh, would, would you want to talk about maybe critical thinking or self-confidence versus self-assurance? Oh, um, let's talk about self-confidence and self-assurance. Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. So that, that was one of the themes I pulled from your first talk in part one. And I, I, what I noticed by listening to you and your journey, I think for your profile, what you really realized is that what you wished you had along this journey was more self-confidence along every step of the way, maybe. Yeah. And that was one of your takeaways that, you know, you told me that, you know, to hold the presence in a room or to get a seat at the table, mm. you know, you should always be 
uh, confident, right? And I had this kind of little bit of pushback, you know, what about substance, right? And I, I kind of misquoted what I said about the engineer, what he taught me was that, you know, there's a very fine line between self-confidence and self-assurance. And I think self-confidence, um, you, you having the experience or knowledge to actually know how you either have like the expertise and knowledge or, uh, you have the the knowledge to know when to say, I don't know that, mm. right? And self-assurance is just you yourself saying without experience or other people telling you that you think you know it, right? So how does one go about cultivating self-confidence versus, say, self-assurance? So that means it's sorry, self-confidence is when you think you know something. Self-assurance is when you... Now, self-confidence is probably you have the experience to back it up. Got right? it. You have the substance. Self-assurance is you just telling yourself. Got it. Got it. You know, I, look, it depends. Like if you've read Lean In... Uh, you know, they, they speak about the imposter syndrome, okay. right? Like a lot of us actually just don't know uh, enough and mm-hmm. we end up having to wing it, right? And yeah. I felt like that a, a lot of times in my life, right? Yeah. I'm sure everyone who's been in any senior level of management, in fact, in your first job, you don't know anything. You're winging it and you keep going, right? Yes, correct. I think ultimately it comes to a couple of things. You can't fake confidence. You can't act like you know something when you don't, right? Yeah. But what you can do is understand what's required of you at every single level and then try to fulfill that, right? So for example, if you're, you know, if you're a new graduate and you're in your first job, People don't expect you to know everything. What they expect you to do is be extremely resourceful, be diligent, be hardworking, and try to be a bit smart. Yeah. Right? So, so it ties back to your experience at BCG when you first came in. Uh, basically, don't sit around and pretend that you know stuff. Absolutely. Right? And you should yeah. just be, you know, if you don't know something, you should be questioning it to kind of develop the confidence. Correct. And, and try to build your own hypothesis, put a bit of work, be a bit resourceful, yeah. then ask for help, right? Yeah. Um, but you don't know that. Hindsight is twenty twenty, yeah, right? Um, and then if you're in a senior level position, I'm pretty sure Obama didn't know how to run the United States yes, uh, yeah. until he became president, correct, right? Correct. I mean, that takes a lot of learning on the job. Uh, what I can say is you've got to build self-confidence by continuously improving yourself. It's 1% every day, yeah. right? And then understanding that you need to kind of have trust in yourself be able to feel that you belong there that you are able to do what you need to do that you're, you're worthy you're worthy yeah uh and and then you know doors open up right because mm-hmm. you start to project that so in your time mentoring those 20 startups of 500 did you see this issue of self-confidence absolutely um, absolutely what could these founders be doing to address this then <sighs> there, there's no silver bullet yeah there's a lot of just like I think fundamentally it comes to this, right? Like confidence is a function of also exposure, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a kid from a you know fairly wealthy family, your parents were speaking about business uh, around the dinner table when you were a kid, mm-hmm. you're going to grow up a little bit more confident around senior executives, right? That takes a bit of time to build if you don't come from that kind of background. That being said, a lot of people will never access the kind of crazy decision-making risk taking confidence building measures. I mean, like Anthony Tan has had to make decisions uh, on, you know, billions of dollar worth of valuation, right? Yeah. They're pulling the trigger on those kinds of decisions. It's yeah. rough. Uh, it's it's going to build a new kind of muscle, True. right? Yeah. So fundamentally, and this is very counterintuitive, number one, ask yourself if that's something you actually want, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you want to build that confidence, right? Yeah. Um, I'm never going to have the confidence to run like Usain Bolt because, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, or maybe if I drink enough, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point is like, You've got to figure out what are the things you want to build confidence towards and then gradually become good at it to some level, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's important to question when you don't really know, right? So you can actually take the data in to start understanding where to point, where to start solving your problems. Absolutely. And you have to do it in you know small steps that compound over time. 
Then, Absolutely. Then, then once you start solving them, I guess you start to feel it and then you could actually start acting it out essentially, right? That's right. I guess the last question then is how would you guard against hubris then? When, oh. when are you being overconfident? Um, oh, such a tough question. I mean, it's difficult, right? And I think like, it depends on who you say this to. I think some people actually need to project a bit more confidence, yeah. right? I speak to a lot of people who don't speak English as a first language in a group of people. They tend to not speak that much. People who haven't been exposed to a lot of people across different walks of life tend to not speak up that much. Some of them need to actually just kind of push a little bit overboard, a little bit of hubris, mm. and then, you know, back down, right? Yeah. yeah. I would say at the end of the day, it's about being authentic, Right, mm -hmm. understanding who you are, trying to be as consistent as possible with your own self truth. Yeah. Right, it's about being vulnerable and opening yourself up to people at the right kind of mm -hmm. level, being empathetic. It ultimately comes down to these very base human instincts that then gives you the right level of confidence. For example, you could be around a group of people who have no context. I, I, I find that sometimes, uh, you know when I was at Lazaro, even now, right, I meet people and then, like, this happens a lot in Asia. There, there's a lot of awe of people who come from a specific, you know, who have a C in front of their title, yes, right? Yes. Or who, who come... Hey, listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode. I'm kind of glad I waited a little bit to release this episode as I would love to point you to further material. Jason Calacanis from This Week in Startups recently did an excellent episode with Josh Silberstein of Thermasio, which acquires sellers on Amazon who have companies that generate millions of dollars. This episode is an excellent companion to our own episode, which provides the Western view of e-commerce. It also highlights that Amazon 2 has been a huge ecosystem player that has innovated from different constraints. It's possible that Thermasio in the future will also have its own successful IPO, similar to how Andrew and I discussed that quite a few companies on Tmall have already listed in China successfully. Either way, we will be looking forward to continuing this conversation with future guests as e-commerce will only continue to consume the world, especially with how our lives have changed with the new paradigm of COVID that was brought upon us. I'm in a fancy, whatever, right? And, and a lot of times that means you kind of actually need to adjust down. And then I question, was that even right? Like, should I have, you know, dumbed down my story or like, you know, changed it a little bit so that I made them feel comfortable? And, and that's one thing I wish people coached others in a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. Just like allowing people to see that they all have the ability to grow and build these amazing things. Mm -hmm. That's a very good uh, point. So at the end, at the end, you want to be authentic. Um, I would caveat that. Also developing maybe some tools and mental models to prevent against cognitive bias. Absolutely. Because uh, the question is also then, what is authentic? But I think that's a great place to end this. You know, at the end of the day, be authentic. Keep working on those uh, things to build the muscle for uh, self-confidence. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for being on part two of your Thanks, podcast. Alex. All right. Bye. Cheers. Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode. I'm kind of glad I waited a little bit to release this episode as I would love to point you to further material. Jason Calacanis of This Week in Startups recently did an excellent episode, episode 1094, with Josh Silverstein of Thrasio. Thrasio acquires sellers on Amazon who have companies that generate millions of dollars. This episode is an excellent companion to our own episode, which provides a more Western-centric view of e-commerce. 
It's a great contrast as it also highlights that Amazon too has been a huge ecosystem player that's innovated from different constraints. It's possible that Thrasio will have its own successful IPO, similar to how Andrew and I discussed that there are many companies from China, from Tmall, who have also listed successfully already. Either way, we'll be looking forward to continuing this conversation with future guests as e-commerce will only continue to consume the world, especially with how our lives have changed with the new paradigm that COVID has thrust upon us. If you like this episode, please share it on social media and share it to your friends and family. And let us know your feedback. Go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast to comment or find more information and links to transcripts and analysis of past episodes. Thank you for listening and see you back here next week.